morning, October the 14th, Lesson 43, we're in Matthew chapter 5, looking at verses 33 through 37, and we're back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaking and sharing, and once again talking under this, uh, this broader theme of what's in a person's heart, what's in the heart, and this section today that literally deals with oaths and vows, and more specifically, I would think, the name of the Lord and using the name of the Lord. Uh, I find it interesting that this is one of the six topics that Christ uh, chose to speak about at this particular setting here. And it has everything to do with just what we've been looking at before, as I say, the condition of the heart, what is in a person's heart when words come out of their mouth. And we looked again, what was it, I think, in Matthew 15, a reference verse that talked about that very thing. What's in the heart is reflective. You know, it's going to be what comes out the mouth and vice versa. So that's what we're looking at today. So it's, it deals with a kind of a, a sub-theme of just a general honesty. And it's always a reflection. And it should be a reflection. And by that I mean the words that we speak, in particularly about God. When we invoke the name of God should be reflective of a truth that is within us, that we do indeed have a relationship, that He is our Heavenly Father. And our desire is to represent Him. You know, the Scripture talks about taking every thought captive in a little different light, but that should be our attitude, that everything that comes out of our mouth reflects Him and shows that we are His child and never in any way diminishes God Almighty. And we're, we're capable of doing that if we're flippant about the Word of God so forth. This manifested itself in Jesus' day uh, in a way that people would do this thing about taking oaths and vows and making promises that maybe they would follow through on the, the promise and maybe they would not. So we'll discover today that all that had been provided for actually in the Old Testament. Christ talks about that. And yet, as they had done with so many things, the Jews get way left of center. And by that, I mean the religious community of the Jews. They get way left of center, and they allow tradition and so forth to change the Word of God. They don't just simply do not get the true message of Scripture. Well, nowadays we hear phrases like, uh, let's say, like all is fair in love and war, right? You've heard that before? I just thought of a few. Buyer, beware, right? You've heard that before, haven't you? And the one that I like too is when you're talking with someone and they say, look, I'm going to be honest with you. Well, good. What's, what were you doing prior to that, that statement, all right? <laughs> and you hear that all the time. We say those things without thinking, and maybe even, I'll give you this, culturally in our society, they mean something different, or we understand, or we might know instinctively to kind of take something with a grain of salt. In other words, we, we know what you mean, all right? We're trying to make emphasis. But when we're talking about the name of the Lord, and we're talking about, as I said, evoking the name of God on an issue, we need to be more reverent than that. We need to be very mindful of the fact that we are speaking his name i tell you the truth well really and christ is going to make it clear and either new testament scripture is going to make it clear that really that's the way we should speak and think all of the time i'm kind of cutting to the end now but we really don't need to 
make uh, a specific notation in our language about something we're saying is going to be really the truth. We should live a life where people talk to us and just through the course of normal conversation, they have confidence in what we're saying. It's not any different at any time. Do you follow what I'm saying? So that's the way it should go down, but of course we're fallen and it doesn't always happen like that, does it? There's a natural, as they say, a credibility gap in and amongst people. The fact is, and hold on to your seat here, people lie. Right? Revelation, huh? People lie. And when I say that, and you think, well, lie? I'm talking about an out-and-out, deceptive, premeditated lie. It would include these... uh, you know, this the shading of the truth, overshadowing the truth, trying to recouch something in someone's mind so that they'll come away with the impression that you truly intended them to receive. And it may be not maybe not quite spot on with the total truth. You follow what I'm saying? And can you agree also? I see the head shaking that, that we kind of have a tendency to do that. It's sort of a self preservation, if you will. You might even say it a more base way, a saving of a face that kind of clicks in when we realize that, you know, might have been a little misdirected in that, but if I say this right, if I couch it right, if I put it forth, if I smile or whatever, then I'll convey a message that kind of takes the pressure off me a little bit in this matter. And always gets us back to the point of saying, hey, do I really value the truth about a situation? What is so important about telling the truth? Almost all are suspect. And I think in some degree I can say that all are suspect. Doesn't matter if it's business people, certainly in advertisement you see it, right? Commentators on TV, clerks, salesmen, lawyers, doctors, tradesmen, teachers, writers, politicians, and I inserted here the Senate. Preachers are suspect even. And we want to say, just tell it like it is. And ask yourself this morning as we begin, do you really love and value the truth? Now, I don't mean just the truth of Scripture. Certainly, I can get an amen from everybody on that. I'm talking about the truth about you. I'm talking about the truth about your life. I'm talking about the truth about something that you said or conveyed to somebody on a day when you really didn't do your best and you realized that I might have hurt somebody's feelings or my motivations or my true intentions and God forbid maybe even my character has been called into question. Just call it what it is. Can we give each other that much space within the family of God and know that, hey, we're all fallen, right? We all, fall, we all make mistakes. We're encouraged as I pray to confess our faults one to another. And do we have an expectation in that regard? Do we? When we share our faults with someone else and we place that responsibility on them, we have a legitimate expectation that that person takes that information and they hold it private, right? And that their desire is to pray and to minister for us and to receive us with forgiveness if necessary, if that's the case. God help us if we ever step out of that. Because nobody can survive 
that kind of scrutiny. We're not perfect, as we say. So we open up our heart. Now, that's not to say there are times that there are things that don't need to be said, but there are times when we should talk and we should talk and speak honestly. This is going to deal specifically with the name of the Lord, but these things are, as I find them, they are, they are uh, couched together here as I look at them. So much of what we know and experience on a daily basis is based on falsehoods. It's based on half-truths. And I seriously but jokingly made a remark here about the Senate because of what we've seen late, lately on TV, you know, with the confirmation of Kavanaugh and all that. You listen to this side, you listen to this side, and each side is just as convinced, oftentimes just as compelling. And it makes the fact that there is really one truth <laughs> about this situation. And I'm afraid we've perhaps come away not knowing for sure. We can only say, well, this is in the... We can only say that when you look at evidence or whatever or the lack thereof, then we have to decide this way or that way, however you see it. But rest assured, something happened or something didn't happen. And it's the truth, the absolute truth. The Word of God tells us that there's a day coming in the life of everyone and in particular in the life of every believer. There's a day coming when all will be made clear. All that's been done in secret. That day, as it says, when you give an account, listen to this, and we've mentioned this before, of every idle thought, that should wake us up. That alone right there should be compelling to cause us to look at our heart and to be able to say, I am being honest. I am being truthful. I'm being truthful with myself. First off, listen, you can't come to Christ if you're not willing to do that, right? Because you must first acknowledge your sin. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. And I'm responding to Christ. I truly am. I want Him. I don't want anything else. I don't want religion. I don't care who knows. I want Christ. We approach Him with that type of honesty, do we not? And it starts with acknowledging the truth about what's going on within our heart. We know all this. We know about the falsehoods. We know about the deceptions in our society, and yet justice is absolutely impossible without truth. We know that. We instinctively know and are aware of the need of truth in any matter. Because we know we're going to be wasting our time. We're going to be wasting our money. We're going to be wasting our efforts if we're not acting upon the truth, whatever it, it be. We should be people who love the truth, the truth of a matter. Daniel Webster said, good quote from Daniel Webster, there is nothing as powerful as truth and often nothing as strange. And it's been that way in the life of people forever because people often manifest this dishonesty that's in eight within them. It's part of the sinful nature that we're born with. The Jews of Jesus' day had been so influenced by rabbinic tradition and unbiblical creeds that they had moved far away from what they considered to be and had literally listed and taught four great sins. And they said these four sins can cloud, you know, shut you out, if you will, from the presence of Lord. So they listed scoffing, hypocrisy, slander, and lying. So in principle, they knew that. 
They understood that even in their own documents, okay, even in their own teaching. And we're talking again, and we're at that level, we're talking about rabbinic tradition here. They knew that. They had a great reverence for the principle of truth, talking about truth. I'm for truth, okay, in principle. But the practice of it was something different. Uh, a difference for them because there was this unbiblical perspective that they had had. They had allowed their culture and their own selfishness, if you will, to come in and sort of redefine what God had established. So with that, we look at chapter 5, verse 33, which says again, Jesus speaking, of course, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, the same group that he's referring to, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. So he says a couple of things here. You don't make false vows, and you fulfill your vows to the Lord. Now, he's, this is not a direct quote from Scripture that Jesus has given you. He's literally telling you, or he's, if he's quoting, he's quoting this rabbinic passage or this statement that was common and probably written or it was probably written down somewhere but it's coming from verses that had kind of been changed a bit or or reinterpreted a bit in the minds of the religious community there for instance Leviticus 19.12 says you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God I am the Lord they knew that verse if a man from Numbers 30 Verse 2, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. They understood that. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you. And the Lord your God will surely require it of you. That's Deuteronomy 23, 21. That's what they, the Lord had laid down in the Pentateuch there. But they, when they looked at this, they didn't perhaps take into consideration that if you see the word vow there, it's used a couple of different times. The first time it's used, it's a different word. All right? Um, it's the word epio, epiorkeo, I believe is the way it's pronounced, which means nothing to me. But the, but the definition is it means to perjure oneself. Literally, in a legal sense, to perjure oneself. And it deals with making a false vow, knowingly. But the second one is a different word. It's harkos. And it means to enclose or to bind together, to bring something to fulfillment, to close it off. Uh, I think I've shared with you before a little Greek restaurant I eat at. There's a lady there that I often talk to about Scripture. And she's Greek. And she... Of course, reads and understands Greek. And she'll ask me sometimes, you got any new words for me? Because I'll take my studies in there sometimes uh, and be going over some information while I'm waiting to go pick up Melissa at the hospital there. And uh, I told, showed her this word here, this uh, H-O-R-K-O-S. She said, oh, yeah. She said, and she held out her arms. She said, it means it's like, a, it's like a, uh, a link in your bracelet. I said, what do you mean? She says, well, it... It means that if it's not there, it doesn't hold together, which is exactly what this is talking about, to bring something together, to bind it together. And of course, in the context of what we're talking about here, it means to complete what you're saying. If you say you're going to do something, okay, and in that realm, it comes to a conclusion. It's finished. Okay, It's bound together. 
And you know that words change, so it was interesting to see her perspective on that word. Hebrews 6.16 gives us a clear description of an oath. It says, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. This just talking just kind of forensically about what an oath is. Literally, you swear by something that's greater than you. You draw attention to that. Alright? And it's supposedly, because of the weight of it, because of the power of it, it kind of settles the issue. The issue is settled because of the strength of what you're saying. But if you don't follow through on it, then it's not effective, is it? It doesn't work that way. Well, that's to say that the name of something or someone greater than the person making the oath is evoked to give greater credibility to what is said. That's what you're doing. But in these days, in the time that Jesus spoke, people would pick all kinds of things. Uh, and it's interesting why. They would swear you know, on the temple. They would swear on their children or whatever. They would swear on the sun or the moon. They would swear on different things that had strength, you know, that had power, that, ev- that evoked some other kind of commitment within the person's heart that would make them say, look, if I fail in this, then I fail in this. And, I, and, and people wouldn't, uh, wouldn't always be honest in that regard. you follow what I'm saying? They thought that they could just pick anything, not the name of the Lord, pick anything and make a commitment, make a vow, make an oath. And they would later understand that, hey, if we don't make it in the name of the Lord because of what we've read in the Old Testament Scriptures, then we don't have to follow through on it. That was their thinking. Well, people would say things, and they they even say it today, may the Lord strike me dead. All right? Well, here, if you make a statement like that, you're calling down the Lord as a witness to the truth of what you're saying, right? But He's also standing ready to avenge you or to avenge your statement if you don't follow through. I remember working an accident one time on Piedmont Road at Kenton Highway when I was a young patrol officer. Uh, an elderly gentleman was out there and he'd run a red light. It was pretty obvious. I had a witness. And the guy was really upset and I was trying to calm him down. I saw him take a nitroglycerin pill. And when I saw him do that, I called an ambulance right then. I didn't even matter. I just went ahead and called an ambulance. Within a couple of minutes, his son appeared on the scene. And I'm trying to get a statement from this guy when I get him calmed down. There wasn't anybody hurt. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, look, as the, he said, as Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, I did not run that red light. That's exactly what he said. And within two minutes, he had dropped dead right there. He literally fell backwards in his son's arms. And his son, I remember his son, I was doing the record. He said, hey, and I turned around. He was holding his dad, his dad with his back to his son. And he was holding him. So we went through that whole thing. But I, I thought about that. That was his last statement, or at least his last statement to me. In the Old Testament, God provided for making oaths in his name. He provided for that. And you can look at Leviticus chapter 9, verse 12. Old Testament law records what God intended, but they were to be made only in the name of the Lord. Only in the name of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6.13 You shall fear only 
the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. Again in Deuteronomy later 6.20, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him and cling to Him, and you shall swear by His name. So I added this, an oath was a solemn pledge to affirm something said as absolutely true. The evoking of the Lord's name and the oath meant that one was bound under obligation before God to fulfill that word. So once again, we can say that this evoking the name of the Lord is extremely relational, is it not? We can say this, if there's not a relationship there, you don't need to be doing it. You don't need to be doing it. Because when we speak His name, when we evoke His name, when we call down on His name, there are some legitimate assumptions there. It's that we know and recognize Him for who He is and that we have subjected ourselves to Him in every aspect as far as we know. And you may be thinking, well, look, Mike, I don't, I don't do that every time. Every single time. Well, we should. That should be our heart. Genesis 14, 22 and 24. You see, Abraham, he confirms his promise to the king of Solomon with an oath, if you go back and read that. He does the same thing with Abimelech and his interactions with him. He confirms it with an oath. He made his servant, Eliezer, swears by the Lord that he would not take a wife for Isaac from the pagan Canaanites. Made him take a vow before the Lord. And there are others, a lot of them in Genesis, where you see this example from the patriarchs and people back there who would do that. First Samuel 20:16, David and Jonathan did the same thing. They swore a covenant to each other and they made a vow between themselves before God. And, of course, there are even examples in the Word of God where God made oaths on certain occasions. He Himself. God Almighty. Genesis 22:16 and 17. By Myself, He says, I have sworn declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. You know where that's from. That's from the account with Abraham and Isaac when he's going to offer up Isaac. Hebrews 16.13 For when God made the promise to Abraham since he could swear by no one greater, he swore, talking about God, he swore by himself. And If you read that, he would go on and say, I will surely bless and multiply you. There the Lord swearing by his own name. What about Jesus' example? And it's sort of the same, well it is the same thing when Jesus says, like he does, and we read back in Matthew 5.18, again in 26, other places that we'll see as we go through Matthew, you know, he says, truly, truly, right? He's drawing emphasis to something. Particularly in John, you get truly in the other scriptures, but if you go look in John, you're going to get truly, truly. All right? Making a specific point of reference, drawing attention to something that he's saying is of supreme importance. And that's the way we should view the name of the Lord when we refer to Him. The Lord God allowed for proper oath-giving. Proper oath-giving in His name. And He did it 
as I understand it, from, it's an accommodation for our sinful human nature, which is prone to deceit and lying. At least that's the comments that I read. In serious situations, an oath is permissible to give greater motivation to tell the truth or to keep a pledge. And we see that. Everybody in here who's married, you've made an oath. You've made a vow. We talk in terms of vows. You've made a pledge. You've done that before God and before man to make a point. But we can use that as a prime example. Did you, was your emphasis in making that pledge, was it before God Almighty? Or was it just some simple understanding that, hey, I'm doing this publicly. I'm doing this before men, which is important. But once again, it's an, it's an issue of what's in the heart. I've had to make pledges in my life. I've held my hand up. I've held my hand up as a witness in court. I don't know how many times. I've held my hand up to be sworn in, if you will, as a police officer. And they've even changed that a little bit. They, now they say, do you swear or affirm? Because some people say that you cannot swear. Okay? That you cannot swear. That's not what Christ is saying. We'll look at that in a moment. You swear as God has provided in His Word. You don't swear mindlessly. Even today when you use the word swear, from a cultural perspective, we think of a swear word, right? A cuss word, a bad word. We're not talking about that. I'm sure I don't need to say that, but just to make that clear, talking about oaths and vows. Keeping an oath made to the Lord was a sign, if you will, of a true worshiper. A legitimate vow. Someone who knows what they believe. Someone who sees themselves fully accountable before the Lord. And has a heart and mind that is fully intended, as much as can be, fully intended to complete, to fulfill that vow or that oath. Psalm 119.29 God, God hates lying, does He not? Keeping an oath made, uh, made to the Lord was indeed a true sign of worship. Those who belong to the Lord hate lies. We love the truth. Back to Psalm 119.29, Remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. Was the cry of the psalmist. Again in 119.163, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Jesus is the truth, is He not? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Psalm 120, verse 2, Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. How much better off would we be if we lived in an environment where we constantly dealt with the truth? The truth as we know it. The truth as we see it. And maybe I should add this. It also points out the fact that when we are off base, not intentionally, but when the truth of a situation is revealed to us, and it may even be a truth about ourselves that, that some, some friend in Christ has helped us see that we're willing to embrace that because we love the truth. We know that nothing can move forward if we move forward on false pretenses. It's not going to be complete. It's certainly not going to be God's best. 
It's eventually going to crumble. It's eventually going to erode if it's not based upon the truth in any situation. Isaiah 65.16 He who is blessed in the earth shall be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Jeremiah 12.16 Then if they will, and I love this, if they will really learn the ways of my people, you don't often see that word, to swear by my name, as they would say, as the Lord lives, that's the phrase they would use, and that's the one in Scripture, as the Lord lives, I will do thus and such, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, they will be built up in the midst of my people. Do you love the truth? The truth of God. An oath was a serious, serious business before God and man. If a person swears thoughtlessly, Scripture says, if he may speak thoughtlessly with an oath, then he must bring his guilt offering to the Lord. Leviticus 5, 4-6. That nature of God has not changed. God will have an accounting. So a little more about the rabbinic tradition. And they made a couple of problems when they would read these scriptures where the Lord specified what was necessary regarding oaths and so forth and what it was to represent. I've shared those. But the first thing they did is they did not, well, they, they literally overlooked, if you will, the proper circumstance for making an oath. You weren't supposed to make an oath flippantly for any particular thing. It was supposed to be serious business. It was supposed to be an issue of considerable weight. Not something that's put out there to help you get your way over something. Certainly in a business transaction or whatever. So oaths became frivolous in their meaning because they were used and evoked in their culture in situations where they really call for an oath. Tradition eventually allowed for any kind of oath over anything. And this was, of course, directly in violation from what God had taught. The oaths and vows became so commonplace that nobody took them ser- serious. In fact, <clears throat> one commentator says that it actually it was a cultural game in some places. And people would kind of get cute with it and kind of work to couch an oath, if you will, in a particular situation, usually in some economic enterprise, trying to purchase something or whatever. They would couch it in a way that would relieve them of having to follow through on what they had purpose to do. This is the attitude, this is the mindset, this is the heart condition that Christ is challenging here. This is what He's challenging. The other thing is that they forgot that any oath, any legitimate oath, as we read, was to be made to the Lord. And nothing else. Nothing else. They began to distinguish vows to the Lord from other vows that they had made. They accepted that they didn't have to honor the other vows. They made a system that would allow that. And again, this is what He's coming down on them for. They would swear by the earth. They would swear by the temple. They would swear because of heaven or invoke heaven. And as we'll see in our Scriptures as they continue today, they would swear by the hairs on their head or by their very head. And none of that is swearing on the name or by the name of the Lord. It just simply became a system of lie-making. 
Because their heart would indicate their true intent on what they were trying to do. To them, a vow or an oath made or taken in the Lord's name was not binding and could be broken, though Leviticus 19.12 forbid that very thing. They would literally sit down, spend some time constructing, if you will, purposely constructing a vow or an oath that had some kind of loophole in it, if you will, that would allow them to get what they wanted without following through. So that's the backdrop. That's the Old Testament backdrop. That's what was contained in rabbinic tradition. So when Jesus is speaking about this issue, it's a huge issue. It has to do with the way people treat and talk to one another. And He brings this up. Because again, I say from the beginning, why would, why would the Lord throw this in the mix with the six here when He's talking about these antitheses? Why would He do that? And there's every evidence that it had such a huge impact on their society. And quite frankly, on the people of God, you know, if they were calling themselves Jews, if they were saying, for instance, that they were truly following what the Old Testament had directed, it was clear that they were not because their hearts were wrong. They were mismotivated. So Christ, in the verses that continue, verse 34 and 35, He reveals, He exposes this. He shines the light on it. And He begins, as He's done with the other verses that we've been looking at, He says in verse 34, excuse me, of chapter 5, but I say to you, here we have that phrase again, where he is exerting his authority over rabbinic tradition. He says, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Now this is that verse that people take and they would go back and say, well look, it says right here, Christ himself says, don't make an oath at all. And this is where you have to to stop and look at the words. And once again, if you're talking here, when he says make no no oath at all, you you can go back and look at this Greek diagramming of words and so forth. And the commentator here says the word that's used here is an unconditional negative that does not preclude all oaths. That's not what he's saying. And there are two fronts on this. He's saying you don't make any oath at all apart from what you've already been taught that's a given there's another side to it that would indicate that uh, especially when James is talking about this and we'll look at it in just a minute in James 5 verse 12 when he says that he's James input is that look you don't need to make an oath at all like I said earlier the life that you live the way that you talk the way that you conduct yourself day in and day out should be convincing You don't need to step it up. You don't need to ratchet up a knot. You don't need to bring something down and say, God, strike me dead if I don't do this. People know. And they know because there's something deep within you that comes out of you in your normal, daily, familiar interchanges with people. This is what he's talking about. When commentator William Hendrickson states, he says, we have... Here in Matthew, and he's talking specifically about verses 33 through 37, and also James 5.12, he says, this is a condemnation of the flippant, profane, uncalled for, and often hypocritical oath used in order to make an impression or simply to spice daily conversation. 
This is what he gives us. So Jesus exposes here the common attitude. This is what he does. Now, to further make that point, Jesus, he, you know, in Matthew 23, you know, familiar with Matthew 23, that's where you have the eight woes. And he's talking and he's really laying it out there for the, the Jewish religious community, the rabbinic community there. And if you go to 16, uh, chapter 23, verse 16, again, that, that section begins with a woe as well. He says, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? What's Jesus doing here? He's digging into the heart, is He not? He's saying, look at the heart of what you're saying. You don't know what you're saying. <laughs> and whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, Christ says, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. And this is what they would say. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears by or swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by Him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by or both by the throne of God and by Him who sits upon it. He's basically saying, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what's coming out of your mouth. You're saying one thing. But it's uh, not reflective of what should be in your heart. Because as he said in the Old Testament, all swearing is before God and it's in God's name. It's because of your relationship with Him. If it's something else, he'll tell us later, it is evil. Evil. And you're talking about people who, who normally, at least at one point, they wouldn't even say God's name. They wouldn't even mention His name. They wouldn't even write His name. They would leave a letter out. They had such reverence for the name of God. This is who He is. This is what He requires. Jesus is not forbidding the making of any oath under any circumstance. Not what He's saying. He just said in verses 17 and 18 that we studied from chapter 5 that He'd not come to destroy even the smallest part of the law. Remember that? He'd come to fulfill it. He'd come to make it clear, to bring it to full fruition in our mind and understanding and eventually in our practice if we yield ourselves to it. So by the Old Testament standard and also by the example of Christ Himself which we alluded to and even by the Apostle Paul. You can go to Romans 9.1 and see similar language that Paul uses in making vows. We swear by no other name, no greater name than the name of God Almighty. He continues on as I finish up here in verse 36 and 37. Verse 36, he says, Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now in their understanding to say by your head, it literally means if I don't do what I'm telling you I'm going to do, decapitation. Take my life is what it's saying. Well, only Christ... Only God Almighty, if you will, has authority over our life. Not us. We don't have the right to do that. 
Or when he says you cannot make one hair white or black or change the color. Again, we're not to usurp God's position over our physical life. And he said in that day and time, making the hair white or black, depending on how you say it, could mean, could, it could even be a reference to time. If your hair is white, you can't make it black. In other words, you can't take your life back. Or if your hair is black and you want to make it white, you can't move your life forward. Only God can do that. They would have understood that then, I understand. Things that they don't have any control over. So that was part of it. And then lastly in verse 37, but let your statement, he says, be yes, yes, let your no be no. And here he adds, anything beyond these is evil. Make your statement yes, yes. Make your no, no. So we're back to that admonition that says, look, the way you live, the way you handle your business, the way that you converse should be enough for people to know who you are and that you are indeed, if you will, a person of your word. James goes to it in James 5.12. I alluded to the verse as we finish here. He says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, that you may not fall into judgment. And James is speaking here of false swearing. That's what he's talking about. Or swearing, if you will, by some other name than the name of the Lord. Not by any swearing at all. That's not what he's saying. So James calls for this straightforward, honest, plain speech and adds anything else evokes the judgment of God in your life. The Matthew Scripture says it's evil. Here James says it evokes the judgment of God in your life. Truth doesn't have any shades, does it? I'll give you one last quote from Jurassic Park. (laughs) Okay? where the guy says, there are no versions of the truth. You remember that line from Jurassic Park? Maybe not. But he's right. There are no versions of the truth. One lawyer talking to another, he's making a statement. He says, that's your version of it. He says, there are no versions of the truth. And he's right. There are none. There's the truth. And we as the people of God live the truth. And when we speak God's name regarding the truth of our intentions, what we intend to do, that is a holy and reverent thing. And we make our vows to God. We make our vows to Him in every situation. I hope this has been made clear. Jesus thought it was such a big deal that He taught it. We have it today because the Spirit of God has put it in the Word of God, right where God wanted it for us to look at. He wants us to be mindful of what we say.